0: warriors, workers, messengers. The road was once busy here, more than 12,000 feet above sea level. Here the people of the Incan Empire would have traveled across great bridges made of grass. At one time they might have traveled almost the entire length of South America, but today only one such bridge remains. Far from civilization, in a place that today's guests ventured to in another life. Welcome to the Get Lost podcast, everybody. Your host, Joe Sills, a freelance journalist for Discovery Networks, Forbes, various other outlets. I'm also the creator of Sold Outside, a travel blog about curious destinations around the planet. Today's guest is a writer, filmmaker, photographer, and adventure seeker. He's the co-founder of the world famous collection of oddities known as Atlas Obscura. His name is Dylan Thuris and he joins us now.
1: Dylan, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Joe. It's nice to talk to you.
0: Absolutely, I appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, first question is, as a writer, you've edited 9,300 Atlas of Spirits <laughs> <interests? laughs>
1: Um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, to varying degrees, sure. Like, I, when when we started the site, I was the only kind of editor so, you know, for the first couple thousand, I was really hands on, like I was re- I was fully editing every single one. And then a lot of then then probably the the bulk of those, let's say, 80, 70, 80 percent of those, uh, you know, I've, I've, it's probably some degree of editing, whether that's like a small edit or, you know, a full paragraph rewrite. It's now I do not much of that anymore. Um, but, yeah, I, I was pretty involved in a lot. And actually. Yeah. Everyone who's been in that role that I was in, which was kind of the place editor role. And now we have a few people doing it, you know, ends up just with their hands in thousands of, of these places. So I'm right. not the only one with that kind of experience. So
0: you've got to be like one of the best people in the world for like bar trivia
1: questions <laughs> around around a very narrow uh, subject matter. Probably. Yes, maybe.
0: Like, like, just really weird shit. Give me like two or three just craziest entries that stick out in your head.
1: Well, I have my many favorites. So one of the you know earliest original entries uh, is a place called the Gates of Hell in Turkmenistan that we actually we take trips to, and it's it's fairly well known now, although it really wasn't as uh, as well known at all ten years ago. And it's basically this nearly 300 foot wide hole in the middle of the Turkmenistan desert that is on fire. It's a big pit of flame and you can see it. You know, in fact, if you go on Google Maps and you zoom into the right spot, you'll see this kind of orangey red dot there. Um, And it looks a little bit like you're looking into a volcano, but it is not a natural occurrence. It's it's basically a huge industrial accident. In the 1970s. Yeah, it's like a gaping hole in the
0: ground full of fire.
1: Yeah, and okay. it's been—I should say—it's been on fire for over fifty years. Um, Solid. So, yeah, yeah. Um, basically, uh, as the story goes, a little bit hard to know for certain because it was Turkmenistan under Soviet rule. The records are like not amazing. Um, right. But at least as the the local the local story goes, it was a drilling rig set up to drill for natural gas. It set up over this big kind of cavern under the desert. And so when they punctured through the crust, it, the whole thing collapsed. It just mm-hmm. turned into this enormous uh, hole and the hole was leaking deadly natural gas. Uh, so they, they did something that may sound crazy, but actually was probably pretty sensible. They lit, they lit this hole on fire uh, because I think they figured it would burn off whatever <laughs> gas store yeah. they had. Apt into in you know a couple of weeks, couple of months, but 50 years later, it's still burning, um, and that's probably because Turkmenistan, that that the Karakum Desert, is the fourth largest natural gas uh, reserve in in the world. So that would be logical. It it it's gonna. No one knows when it will stop burning. The answer could be thousands of years from now. There are there are examples of other fires similar around the world that have been on been burning for thousands of years.
0: There's all these like fun examples of Soviet ingenuity like that. It's like uh, the Americans spent millions of dollars to make a pen that would work in space, and they just brought a pencil.
1: Right, right. <laughs> I love. There was so so we lead a trip out to the gates of hell. We we were, I was gonna go on it with a group of people, um, and it was supposed to run in spring of 2020 for very obvious uh, pandemic reasons that did not happen. We're hoping to. I think our our the next trip uh, that we're hoping to get to go is in 2022. So it'll depend uh, you know, kind of on what's going on there at the time, but we're, we're hoping to run it. Um, and it's funny that you mentioned like the Soviet space program, cause we have a different trip that we we take out to, um, to star city, which is like where they trained the the Soviet cosmonauts. Oh my and God. it was like a pretty, like, it was a secret city. No one was supposed to know about it. Yeah. And it was like much less glamorous than like uh, the kind of like NASA right stuff that was happening like astronauts
0: uh, in corvettes at cape canaveral and i e- dream of e- genie
1: and these were like bunk beds and and like you know home built kind of centrifuges i mean it was it was real like top level science and and these guys got amazing educations and trainings but just a different a different approach to like resource allocation
0: Do you ever have experiences where you run into trouble with uh, the law or the mob or whoever's in charge of these crazy
1: destinations that you find and put on your website? Uh, Well, there are some places on the site that are maybe um, kind of explore at your own own risk kind of ones. You know, there's a few that we try to be really thoughtful about what we list on the site. Uh, But there is stuff like there's a there was a place called the um, Minister's Treehouse, the Mm -hmm. world's largest treehouse that after 2012 was technically trespassing. But the owner, the the, the creator of the treehouse and owner didn't mind if people came. So it was kind of one where it was like, you know, whatever Um, we we there have been a few instances personally where things have gotten sort of questionable. There was a time um, actually as part of this trip we're going to talk about later um, we went to Venezuela to see a place called the everlasting lightning storm. Um, or <laughs> so, the, okay. Yeah. The
0: everlasting lightning storm.
1: Yeah. The and Re- Le- this is Le- not
0: an acid trip. This is a real place.
1: This is a real place. The relapengo Pengo de Catatumbo. There's a handful of places in, in the world. Uh, there's another one in, in Africa. Um, but this one in Venezuela that we're, there is lightning almost most nights of the year, I should say. It's, it's, it's not every night, but it's something like there was something like 260, 270 nights out Mm -hmm. of the year. So that's, that's the the vast majority of them. Mm -hmm. And it it has to do with the sort of geography and geology and the, the environment of, of the place. It's still not a hundred percent clear why there is always this silent lightning storm. But anyway, when we went there, we had an issue, we had an issue with not actually being able to get there because uh Venezuela this area had a problem with sort of river and lake bandits and we got there really late and it was dark and so the the fishermen that we had previously made an arrangement to take us out to the island in the middle of the lake basically said we're not going to do it like this isn't safe um but they said we instead of us we're going to have these teenagers take you and Josh and I, my my co-founder of Alice. The and teenagers
0: I like, will keep you safe from the river
1: bandits. Well, we were like, that's what that was our question. We were like, how is this better? And they were like, oh, we gave all the teenagers guns. And we were like, okay. That's better. We're not, we're gonna stay here. So we didn't actually we we just that was an instance actually where we decided to decline uh, you know, actually actually going on that particular journey. Um we did get to see the lightning. You can still see it from the shore. We right. just didn't sleep she on didn't the island in the middle the, of the
0: the bandit you know. ridden terrain to get to the lightning.
1: <laughs> yeah, we didn't. We didn't have to. Yeah, exactly. So we chose in that instance to, to chill. Um, I, no, I mean, mostly we try and steer people, you know, with an eye towards towards safety. I think people have different levels of comfort in terms of of what they want to do, but certainly, you know, we want to make sure that any place people are going. It doesn't do harm to the place and that people are if there is risks that they're well versed with whatever it is. Right. Like, you know, when you go to Bishop's Castle in Colorado, which is this 16 story tall self-built castle built by one guy. And you can explore it. You can climb all over it. He welded these amazing, you know, steel little bridges out of like rebar you know, but you sign a thing that basically says, like, if I fall off this and die, it's like I'm like you're it's not your fault. Like, yeah, it's not my it, fault. And that's sort of a part of travel in general. Like, even when you go to a national park and you hike out into the the back country or so you hike catchy. down or you hike down into Grand Canyon, like you are you are taking risks and hopefully you're just well versed in what the risks are and you are making sure that you are, you know, acting accordingly. And that's really the question is mostly sort of like know your own level of comfort with risk and be be versed well enough in the in whatever the issue is that you don't do foolish things or get yourself in trouble, which is what happens, you know, which is generally what happens when people, get lost or, or injured in national parks as they haven't, they didn't really understand what they were getting. Did you themselves. just make
0: a get lost joke on the get lost podcast? Yeah.
1: <laughs> thank
0: you. We need more humor. We really do. Uh, we always get into sketchy situations and people are almost on the, you know, fringe of death and stuff. We we really need to inject humor into the show more. So thank you for that.
1: Sure. Yeah.
0: Uh, before we get into today's episode, which I think is just going to be a fantastic uh, episode and a great uh, follow-up from the previous one in the Amazon River with our friend Matthew McConaughey, kind of him to come on the show. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your uh, Atlas Obscura podcast because that is a podcast that I just saw on a list with us with the up Rocks uh, Top 30 Travel Podcast of the Year. So congrats.
1: Thanks. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's, it's something we've been wanting to do for a while. And it basically takes this, this database of places that we have. We've you know, 21,000 places all over the world, strange and interesting locations of, of all different sorts. And we wanted to kind of take that and put it in audio form. So mm-hmm. each day for 15 minutes a day, we, we take you to a place, we tell you an incredible little story about a location that you, you probably aren't familiar with. And hopefully, you know, you have a sort of little transportive moment uh, while you're chopping carrots or or driving, you know, to pick up your kids at school or whatever. It's sort of a little bit of of wonder and travel just tucked into your day.
0: It's the Atlas Obscura podcast. And I think it's a great compliment also like a geographic companion to Aaron Mankey's Cabinet of Curiosities. Mm
1: -hmm, Another mm -hmm. one of those. Yeah, we're we're big fans of of cabinet of cabinets of curiosities in general over at, at Atlas for sure.
0: Absolutely. Um Dylan I also just think this is really cool. Um I'm familiar with Atlas Obscura. I've trespassed on some properties based on your listings. At least I think I was. Um, But I didn't know there was like dudes running it. I thought it was a corporate thing. And it's like this sort of, uh, in my mind, it was like the Wizard of Oz, you know? And there's just this mysterious corporate overlord that's finding thousands upon thousands of hidden gems around the world. But you guys actually just started a blog and it kind of organically became this, right?
1: yeah, so it started over a decade ago. So Josh Foer and I um met working on another kind of project, sort of a really a cabinet of curiosity project, actually. We put on this big celebration of the world's wonders, and it had various people come and and speak and and um, it was it was really great. and And after that, we decided we wanted to work on something else, and I was moving to uh, Eastern Europe for a year to live in in Hungary, started talking about travel. And this idea sort of just came out of the fact that, you know, travel media as it was then and to a degree still is now, just didn't cover a lot of the stuff that I think we thought was most interesting and wanted to see. So, you know. So that was generic. It's all very kind of follow the leader. Everyone's sort of like, you know, some sometime 15 years ago, someone wrote like Iceland is the hot new spot. And people have been writing that same story for ever since. Like, and, you know, it has this tendency to sort of just wear deep grooves in the world as opposed to kind of like finding new, interesting stuff and 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 really giving attention to things that maybe you know, aren't obvious. They're not resorts. They're not sort of obvious, uh, destinations, but are nonetheless really interesting and worth, worth, uh, discovering. And so, yeah, we just, we decided we would make a kind of, um, it was almost like an art project, you know, when it started, the idea was just like, we'd put in what we knew that was cool and amazing and really interesting around the world, things like the gates of hell, you know, and, and ask other people to submit and sort of suggest things that they thought belonged in the Atlas. And that's That's how brilliant move. That was how it started day one. It was like, we launched in 2009, you know, working from my kitchen table and it, Really early, I think we had no idea what it was gonna be really or what would happen, but really early we saw that there were like other people out there who were interested and into this and wanted to and had idea. and were sending stuff that we were like, what is this? Like three months into launching the site, someone who ran a little hotel in Chirrapunji, India, submitted the living root bridges. These bridges that are are grown from the roots of two ficus elastica trees and, and woven together and become these incredibly strong pieces of living architecture. And Magical. At the time, there was like nothing on the Internet about them, like nothing. Mm-hmm. They, there was so little out there. And when we got that, it was just one of these moments where it was like what we had been saying to ourselves just that the world is sort of big and full of incredible wonders. And like people aren't sort of paying attention in the right way. They're kind of talking about travel in all these wrong ways that was a moment where I was like, this was even truer than we could have imagined. Like what? So that's a world level wonder that basically no one knew was there and that they were disappearing. I'm really happy to say that 10 years later, they are, they are being maintained. And I just did actually an episode on the podcast about them and talked to the guy uh, who is running the foundation to try and protect and grow and grow new ones and just, you know, sort of make it a sustainable part of the, 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 infrastructure there. And there's a tourist economy that now supports it. So it's like a good example of, of actually what can happen with a little bit of, of attention, the way that that can work in a positive way.
0: I love that. I love that it's it's instead of digging that rut, you know, if you space out all of these travelers, and like, let's hope we get back to some sort of normal. Um, but you spread everybody out instead of digging that rut around Iceland's ring road, you send people all over the world to these off the grid destinations like uh, in Romania, there's like the Poneri Fortress. You go, it's Dracula's real fortress. Like nobody's there. You have to hop a fence to get to the top. Maybe there's bears. Maybe there's not. I don't know. The sign said something about bears. I think. <laughs> there was a picture of a bear and some Romanians. So. Uh,
1: there's a lot of bears in Romania because the dictator, Ciescu, forbid any locals from shooting the bears. They were like only allowed to be killed by him and he killed a bunch of them. But like, he's just one person he didn't take that many bear hunting trips. Right. So The bear population in Romania grew like incredibly vast over that period. Anyway,
0: that would explain why it's apparently closed off. And if you were to hike up that trail, I'm not saying I did, but if you were, you may see some bear tracks and hear bear noises. So be careful. So Dylan, we're talking about bringing wonder into the world and I want you to take us to a place that I think still inspires you with wonder and it's a destination called the last Incan bridge. Can you tell us how you get there? Like just walk us through the whole journey. What the hell is this? And tell us everything that happened.
1: Yeah. So we're going to have to go back a little bit in time here. We're going to have to go back to 2010 and part of a trip that I took with my co-founder Josh uh, across South America. And we were working on a series for, uh, in partnership with Atlas Obscura and Slate. We pitched them on this series that we're going to go around South America and we're going to talk about these incredible wonders that, that people don't know about. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they, they took us up on it. And so, you know, we were able to put together this basically month long trip uh, throughout South America and and visit some incredible places. One of the places on that trip was the um, Rela Pego de Catatumbo, the everlasting lightning storm in Venezuela. But another one was this place called the Quechua Chaca or the last Incan bridge. Quechua, Chaca. Quechua Chaca is, is the sort of the local name for it. I'm sure I'm, I'm butchering the pronunciation, but it's close. Um, and so the, we basically, we went to Cusco sort of the entry point into Machu Picchu Mm -hmm. Um, And then sort of instead of we did go to Machu Picchu for a bit, which is which is amazing, but also like a very. uh, Heavily trafficked tourist site and like maybe not managed always in the best way it could be. It's it's usually quite crowded and and there's been some degradation and it's, you know, so it's like one of those places where you kind of see, okay, this is one example. And one of those more heavily rutted travel places for all, all for good reason. Uh, but then if you go, it's about three hours sort of in the other direction. You come to this tiny little sort of set of villages and hanging over one of the sort of big gorges there with the river running below it is this bridge. And it looks, you know, very much like something kind of out of a. Like an Indiana Jones movie, right? It's 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 this hanging suspension bridge, mm-hmm. woven entirely out of grass or this kind of hay, and so it took us a minute to find it because we it's not really marked. It wasn't really set up. There was zero tourists there to see it, um, and and what it is is, well, first I'll tell you about sort of how it's made. So when I say it's woven out of grass, I mean exactly that. It It is, the area around there grows as like one type of sort of straw-like uh, material. Right, okay. And and it, the llamas eat it. And uh, what happens is once a year, the four villages that live in this area come together and they actually cut the bridge down. They They, they get rid of the old bridge, which has at this point started to rot and started to kind of come apart a little bit. And they take this grass and they they sort of you roll it together in your hands. You get it wet and you kind of start to t- turn it into twine. And then you take that twine and you weave it into these ropes. And then eventually the ropes become these huge cables. And over this kind of three day festival ceremony, these villages reweave this almost 100 foot, long suspension bridge. It's uh, madness. It's madness. It's it's amazing. And the bridge, there's an MIT um engineer who f- focuses on on kind of um you know ancient engineering and did some tests and this bridge is unbelievably strong. It can it can easily hold like 50 people on it. Um, wow. And and so each year this bridge is remade in this way overseen by this guy, Victoriano, who is the the, the bridge master. And the reason it exists, and the other part about this bridge that's so incredible, besides just being a bridge, a big suspension bridge woven from grass, is that its other sort of name is the last Incan bridge. And that's because for over 500 years, this bridge has been remade in this exact same way, where... The village comes together, reweaves it. And it was part of the vast Incan highway empire that spread all over South America. This is a living kind of piece of Incan state infrastructure that is the same today as it was hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And there used to be hundreds of these, like 200 of them across uh, Peru and across South America to sort of connect across these deep gorges and valleys. And they were, they were maintained by the Incan state. Uh, and you know, they would actually draft sort of working men to, to spend a certain number of, of days a year helping to maintain them and maintain the road network. And, um, and when, when the conquistadors saw these things for the first time, they were totally terrified. They, they, they called them the devil's work. And, and the thing is at the time that they were being made, no, there was no Sussent bridge uh, suspension bridge like this anywhere in Europe. Like, so this like, was it,
0: unlike anything they'd ever seen. And if you look at it, if you look at the Keshwachaka Obscura listing, it's probably pictures you took. Yeah. Uh, um, it's it's very uh, guttural looking. It looks like like almost like the inside of a whale turned inside out or something, or like it's skeletal and and sort of it looks alive. It's just, it's very very freaky. It's. Uh,
1: it's very organic, you know, and I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing about the, the Incan Empire and why this it, it fits actually so neatly in, into the Incan Empire's sort of what they did. You know, these moments were kind of like technology can go in so many different ways. Right. And like so the Incan Empire didn't you know, they didn't really have the wheel or they didn't use the wheel in the way that, you know, the, the kind of European and Western world eventually used the wheel but they kind of went this other way. They became like masters, absolute masters of fiber. So Quipu, their language was a language woven into fiber. They made armor that was pound for pound stronger than steel armor made out of fiber. They wove boats out of reeds, out of fiber. They made their bridges out of fiber. They, so it was almost like this piece of this expansive kind of technological world of of like fiber making and weaving. So it's got this real, you know, real kind of organic look to it. Um, And I just find the kind of fact that even though each year you're seeing a new bridge, it it is this, you know, really ancient tradition being handed from father to son, bridge master to bridge master down through generations to be like totally incredible and astounding.
0: It's like a a living link to the past. Now, describe what it's like to walk across this bridge because it's pretty high up.
1: Yeah, it's, 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 um, I have some great GoPro footage of me going across and it always gets a gasp when I show it. It's, you know, we came in about halfway through its life cycle. So it was starting to wear a little bit. So it's like one side is kind of a foot, you know, lower than the other, the kind of planking made of sticks is starting to come apart. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is I knew as long, I knew that as long as I didn't like let myself Like, as long as I was kind of like paying attention to my footing, it wasn't going to break. It was super strong, way more. You can take a horse across this thing, you know, like you can people use these in really serious uh, kind of uh, ways to transport stuff. Um, But, you know, it's not what I think most people, it swings, it moves under your feet. You're walking basically on huge uh rope cables essentially four rope cables are kind of the main components of this bridge so you know it's not necessarily for the 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 anyone who's who's deeply afraid of heights
0: it looks crazy and there's this feature on atlas obscura where you can like sort of flag it if you've been there and i don't know how many millions of people visit your website but in all that time only sixty-one people have been to this bridge.
1: Yeah, it's kind of crazy because it's not that far from Cusco, and you can get yourself out there. It's got a little bit more of a tourist, um, a little bit more of a tourist economy and infrastructure now than it did then. Again, in this case, very much to the good. You know, places like this, this bridge, there's a steel bridge about half a mile up that like trucks go across and whatever. So there's there's other infrastructure, but you know, this bridge is very important. To these local communities, and it represents a link to their their past. And what ha- what happens though is with no economic infrastructure to support that stuff, it becomes hard for it to maintain in the world. People leave; they go to the cities to get a job. It's like, why am I going to stick around and learn how to be a bridge master? Like, that's not a like, what 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 kind of like future future is that? But I think when there's a little bit more tourist infrastructure, uh, some of that money goes to good use and helps has helped make sort of schools and, and more um, kind of important uh, necessary stuff in the area.
0: You think when you travel frequently, um, and, and as most people that travel a lot, you kind of can become jaded over time. But if you think back to walking in the footsteps of these Incan people, um, does that still hold a special place in the world of travel? places like this bridge places like
1: i i am i am a forever i don't i i i don't know why why this is so but i seem to not jaded has not really i am delighted anew every time i go to a place like that i mean that's a special one but there's others for very different reasons that that i hold in that same kind of esteem and and honestly even a little place even just like a small kind of local experience. Like not far from me in Ithaca, there's a woman um, who runs a place called Gordlandia. And, you know, she basically, she has a garden where she grows all these different size gourds. She dries them out and then she carves them into different shapes, different pieces of art. And you might think like, I don't know, that's whatever, that's cute or interesting. But when you go there and you talk to her, and you see how she does the work, and you see this garden filled with these giant, enormous hanging gourds, and you walk down this trellis where there's like 50,000 gourds hanging down, you're like, you, I personally can't help but feel like totally amazed. And I, and I think that that is a lot of what Alice Skira is about, is like trying to cultivate that sense of wonder and joy and surprise For yourself. It is easy to get jaded in this in the world and it is easy to get kind of like um, to kind of feel like there's not there's nothing new under the sun or or whatever. You can just see it all on the Internet, but it's not the same. Like being in a place and discovering it for yourself is a really different feeling.
0: I think so. I think when you just just take that extra flight. You know, you take the big jet, you get to roughly where you're going, usually a major city. And there's an opportunity almost always hop on some sketchy ass plane or a ferry or a train that's not quite right. And it it seems like that's the way to learn something, in my opinion.
1: What's crazy is I don't think you even have to get on the first plane. I think half the time you can if you know how to look. And you, and you are sort of open to finding a story or finding an experience wherever you are, you can find something incredible 50 miles from you. You know, it's a lot. Travel is about stories. Like when we fall in love with a place and think, man, I really want to go there. It's because we've told ourselves a certain kind of romantic story about the place. We've, we've, we've enchanted sure. ourselves. And that is about storytelling. And so that is really, the, the in a way, to me, the place and the story are all intertwined and intermingled. And part of Atlas Obscura is just about like opening yourself up to new stories and letting them enchant you, even if they're like in Hoboken, you know what I mean? Or, <laughs> yeah. or in Troy or wherever, you know, they could be though. And uh, there are they some are. very cool listings there. T- totally. Exactly. I mean, that's, it's just it. It's like, they're there. You just have to believe it and be willing to kind of interact with them.
0: So when you guys are, are down in Peru and you're in Keshevachaka, um, What's the scene like? Tell us about that village. What's, what's on one side of the bridge? Where does it go? What's happening?
1: Yeah, so it connects. Um, I mean, it's funny because it doesn't connect that much. I mean, at first glance, it's sort of like, it's not like a major throughway or anything. Um, there are these little kind of villages with small stone houses. Uh, they are, it's poor, it's a poor area, you know, much like much of rural Peru. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the coolest things about that trip was getting to spend time with this guy, Victoriano, who was the bridge master, who's in his fifties and had, and, you know, was kind of like the grand architect of the bridge. So he would, she would help oversee the whole process. He showed us, you know, we did, we did a video. I, I, I was uh, doing a lot of video work back then. So I was sort of the videographer for all of this. And, and, um, you know, he showed us how you made this twine. Uh, And I brought I brought a piece home uh, with me, um, which I think was later. Victoriano gave you a piece of the twine. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like you may I mean, it's sort of for him, it's like no NBD, you know, he just like cut some grass, poured some water on it, smashed it with a rock, twisted, twisted, sort of braided, braided. And then there you go. Um, And so, yeah, it was just a really intimate experience in that sense. And just to see sort of the person upholding this tradition uh, was, was like a powerful part of the trip. Um, and on, on that trip, we went to all sorts of other places. We went to another part of Peru, another rural part with a place called Gacta Falls, which is by, depending on how you do your estimates, the world's fifth tallest waterfall that was pretty much undiscovered, at least undiscovered by outsiders, um, until about 2006. And that's just another example of kind of like the ways in which the world's wonders can kind of fly under the radar
0: uh this is tremendous i have two questions i want to ask you about victoriano and like when you're sitting there with him and you're looking at his eyes and really you're looking through the lens through his eyes but um what does he tell you about the future of his bridge and his town because he's 50 so he can't be the bridge master forever
1: No, it's a good question. And it's funny. I've just been thinking about this, you know, because I I, I've been thinking about doing a podcast episode about it. And that was the question I wanted to ask, actually, is like, what's going on? Are you how is your you know, uh, is your kid going to take this over? Like, who's the next bridge master? What's what's going to what's going to happen? Like I said, I think because, you know, this place is of tremendous cultural importance to, to that area. Um, And so I think there, there was real confidence, you know, in, in its value. And I think there was a desire, you know, we talked about the desire for, for more people to kind of be aware of it and aware of its specialness. Um, And, and I don't know though about the future. I mean, it's, I think, I think there will be a future because there's, there's been more interest and more of a tourist economy about it, but I don't know exactly what's going to happen as far as whether, you know, who the next bridge master is going to be and how that's all going to work. It's a good question.
0: I feel like you should go down there and talk to him and you cut a a podcast with him and, you know, experience, even if you need a translator or whatever, I think that's a worthy thing. And it's a space in the podcast realm that although we try to fill it somewhat with our format um, it's pretty hard to actually get out in the field. I mean, you need, yeah financing on another level to really do yeah. that you need financing on a
1: level b also because we're a daily show it's like not it's but like yeah i would love to do that and we've talked about you know organizing a trip there too to be there during the three-day um festival when they remake the new bridge because i think that would be a really incredible way to experience that that process So for so listeners I, yeah.
0: that may find themselves in peru in the next uh couple of years uh, what's the best way for them to get down there
1: These days, when we did it 10 years ago, we we worked with a local anthropologist who knew where it was and we hired a van and then we like sort of drove out close to where it was and then we asked around and we're like, hey, do you know where this place is? Like, where are we going? And eventually we found our way there. I think it would probably be easier now. I think you could probably just hire a driver to get out there. I don't think there's any other, you know, it's Peru, so it's like you, you everything is sort of driving along these like terrifying, sheer-edged cliffs. Um, I, there's no other yeah. way. There's not like any public transport out there. So I think you just you just hire you just hire a driver and basically I think if you told them I want to go to the Quechua Chaca or the Last Incan Bridge, I think at this point they probably know what you are talking about.
0: Let's rewind a little bit and go ten years back because I love this story. So, you land in Cusco and you're like, okay, we have an idea of where we want to go but we have to talk to the an anthropologist, and that's our way. Like, can you walk me through, how did you know the anthropologists? And tell me about the journey to get to Chesh- Keshuwchaka.
1: Well, we were, I mean, that trip was crazy because we were bouncing all over South America within a relatively short amount of time. We had talked to, uh, his name was Jean Jacques, the the, the anthropologist. My, my co-founder Josh had been the one who had been in contact with him and because he knew about the existence of bridges like this before. There's a famous uh, book called the, um, the Bridge of San. What is the name of the book? The Bridge of San Luis Rey um, mm-hmm. that that includes depictions of one of these great, enormous Incan suspension bridges. Um, and there was a little bit of scholarship on it. So, you know, we, we I don't I can't remember how Josh knew this anthropologist, but it was basically kind of through academic work was the way into finding out, you know, where this bridge was. And that's usually
0: the way to get into trouble fast is you become friends with an anthropologist and then...
1: (laughs) Totally, (laughs) totally, yeah. The the kind of knowledge of of what's really going on is is way deeper in in the academic space a lot of the time. So
0: you pick up this Jean Jacques, which is, he sounds French, so I'm assuming he's trouble.
1: (laughs) Yeah, French, yeah. Uh, yeah. He's
0: definitely trouble then.
1: Yeah. And, and then we, I mean, then we, then we drove out in the van. Then we like, we drove it in the van. We went, we found the village. We walked across the bridge. We talked to Toriana, we chilled out for a while. And then basically, you know, we didn't, I would have loved to have stayed for a couple of days, but basically then we just went on to like, find Gokta Falls, find this waterfall that had been basically kind of, um, you know, Un, unseen, really, by most outsiders, for until until the the early two thousands, and then we were like off to where did we go next? We went into the Amazon, looking to to sort of into the legends of giant snakes. Like, there's all of these legends of like truly astonishing.
0: Do they really need legends? I mean, they actually have giant snakes. They, they do giant and, earth snake legends.
1: Yeah, we talked these this, you know, this is sort of like there are these tales of snakes that are 100 feet long or 60 feet long or these kind of ultra anacondas. And so that when we cruised around the Amazon talking to to locals and, and and some naturalists and, you know, just tried to sort of get the facts around that one earlier in the trip, we were in Colombia and this was another kind of amazing transport story. So, you know. Any place where there are giant gorges that separate parts of the geography, like weird, crazy, interesting ways of transportation get invented. Uh So like in India, it's the living root bridges. In Peru, it was these these woven grass bridges. In Colombia, sometime in the 1950s, loggers set up these homemade DIY zip lines Uh, where you brought your own gear it was just the cable up so you showed up with your own roller with a hook on it and rope that you made a little seat out of and then a brake that was usually made out of wood sometimes it was wood with a little piece of steel in it because when you took one of these zip lines you'd get going up to like 50 miles an hour and if you didn't slow yourself down you'd slam it to the other side and break your leg safe stuff that is how Kids were getting to school <laughs> in this village. Oh, they loved going to school. Yeah, and then usually, if they were little, they'd usually go with an older relative, a brother or a, or a parent. Um, they kind of and, and so you know we went and and found one of these zip lines that was still in active use, and I zip lined across and then climbed up to the other side and zip lined back. One of the more um like one of the more terrifying uh uh transportation experiences of my life did you have Uh, a
0: legit break or you just you got like a piece of wood
1: no no i was with so i went with this kid he was like 17 years old Uh, you and teenagers still (laughs) yeah Yeah. Well, you know, teenagers are getting into trouble all over the world. Uh, That's right. So he, I mean, he worked across, he used the zip line to get to work every day, basically to go across and, and, and like harvest stuff from the fields over there. And so he kind of like got, showed me how to get into the rope thing and we went together. I, so, cause I was like not equipped to go on my own, but you're just sitting in a, you're not in a harness. You're sitting on a, like a, piece of rope. I mean, you're sitting, there's like two pieces of rope and you're, I'm hugging this guy and I'm holding onto the rope and you're making sure that you don't let your finger get in front of or on the roller because it will just chop it off immediately. Uh, And then he's got the brake. So he's operating the brake. So he takes his little Y shaped piece of wood and slams it against the, the steel cable. And it creates enough friction to slow you down. And, and it's like, it makes smoke actually while it does it like sparks and smoke. Uh, And so, Pretty, pretty, that was a good one. So this is good footage of that, at least. This is one, yeah, we made a, vi- we made a little video about it, um, that one too. And so this is, uh, these, these were all, that was a great, that was like a truly amazing trip because it was sort of so broad and, and, and ended up going to so many sort of really memorable, incredible places. I don't know if I've ever been on a trip quite like that since.
0: So in this context, at least, you feel like the whirlwind trip was worth it rather than sort of slowing down?
1: Because of what we were doing, because of the way we were storytelling around this stuff, it, it definitely worked for that, that purpose. I think mostly I'm a fan of much slower, much more kind of like deliberate travel than that because i think often we knew we had this set of stories we wanted to tell right you know we had these like seven stories that we were going to tell and they were all over you know south america and so um in that sense it it made sense i i think when you're sort of uh, unless you're doing something like that it sort of sucks to go to like a new country every four days or always be moving because i don't think it gives you time to actually find some of those other smaller like local wonders and really appreciate them. So normally I'm, I'm a big fan of taking it, taking it a lot slower than that.
0: I think it's interesting that, so you launched a site G 12 years ago. Yeah. About that. 12 years ago. And, and in that time,
1: how has this site changed your world? Mm. That's a big, I mean, it's my whole adult Career, It's what I ended up, I mean, I, I did a little bit of work before it. I worked as in film and in video and, and um, but really since I was in my, because it even started a little bit before that and before it launched, we were already working on it in 2008, um, 2000, late 2007, even. So, you know, we started in, I was in my mid twenties, 26, 27, sort of an adult, not exactly, and right. like and you're in
0: an adult's body, but you're still sort of like, I'm just out of college. In, you don't in know what, you're, what
1: doing. you're doing. Really? You're just make, You're like super making it up as yeah. you go. You can
0: drink as much as you want. Still. Like you got that, that mid twenties, you know, youthful yeah. liver. Yeah,
1: totally. Yeah. <laughs> Those habits. days are long, long gone. No. So I, I, you know, it's been my life. It's been, it's been my career. It's been kind of the organizing principle of my world. You know, now I'm, Thirty-eight. I've got a couple kids. Like, and by the way, my relationship to travel is now totally different because I have two children that I travel with most of the time, and so that really changes how you do that kind of, of traveling. And I was always like a one-bag kind of guy. I was like always, you know, never check a bag, like just yeah. walk onto the flight. Like, and I like still like I still am sort of that guy, but then also. I, I usually there's also a giant rolly bag and like a pack and play and a car seat. You're not as cool as you used to be. No, Mr. I'm Backcacher. just like, I'm someone's dad, you know, and that's awesome. It's like, it's also I get to travel with the kids and we, we took them for, to South Korea for two weeks and that was like really, really amazing. And you don't always get to do everything you do on your own, but you, you end up having a different kind of experience. So anyway, I don't know, you know, it's the site's changed a lot. As far as the site goes, we it grew from a few hundred places to, to, tens of thousands of places. We started a, you know, editorial department where people are writing original articles. You know, we have a staff of around 50 now, uh, across all the division parts of the company. We run trips all around the world. You know, we we obviously took a big break in 2020, but, um, you know, we ran close to a hundred trips in 2019. Um, we do all kinds of stuff now. I don't know. He's like, we, poked, we wrote a bunch of books. We, um, you know, so it's just grown. It's sort of year by year, it's grown more and more. And I feel other. like
0: you guys have given a home to these these stories that are like misfit toys. Um, as a writer, I experienced this all the time because writing for Discovery Networks and places, I'll pitch some things that come back to me like, this is too dark. This yeah. is too obscure. This is too, yeah. I'm like, well, shit, you know? Right.
1: Totally.
0: And I'm like, I know people are into this. Okay. Totally. It's not just because I grew up in a haunted house that I
1: like all this stuff. (laughs) Totally. Half the thing we did was just scoop up. So it was sort of like, okay, over here, there's all the Urbex and abandoned stuff, which is interesting because a lot of the folks who get into that stuff end up becoming like really interested in history, right? So there's like yeah. a kind of like real nerdy strain. To, so we kind of pulled that in. And there's like the folk art stuff, all of the crazy stuff kind of made by one creator all, all around the world. And we pulled that stuff. We pulled the, some spooky stuff in and we pulled, you know, like real nerdy sort of like amazing little library. Just, it was a, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We sort of was like, this is the stuff that gets rejected by most travel editors. And it's like, why? Yeah
0: why yeah. because we'd rather have you know five ways to budget your disneyland trip but like oh god kill me why <laughs> yeah. why am i writing this
1: <laughs> yeah i mean there's other look it's all fine but there's just there's plenty of places that do it and i think it's nice to sort of you know yeah if you've got a weird a weird travel story a weird place and you have something really to say about it i think Atlas obscure is a good a good home for it
0: i believe so too um uh, just doing my background research on this interview, I found a line from you some article, I can't remember where it was, but it said when you were first starting out, you would buy a guidebook and there'd be like one sentence in a lonely planet as you'd key in on like well, this is crazy. Why Why isn't there more about this one sentence that probably there was and it got edited out. Yeah. Um, that's what Atlas Obscura is. So if you guys are somehow not familiar with it, uh, you should go to atlasobscura.com and Absolutely, check that website out. Um, as we kind of wrap things up here, I want to go back to this waterfall. Yes. Because I want to know from firsthand perspective, what is it like to come upon this um, not undiscovered, but relatively undocumented wonder yes. of the
1: world? Yeah, that was, a re- that was a really interesting trip. Um, so by the time we got there to the town of Gokta, you know, it, it was 2010, so it had been about four or five years since this waterfall. What happened was basically a German hiker came through the area naturally, and, yeah, naturally, and uh, and looked up and saw this this waterfall and thought, "Man, that is a really really tall waterfall." And asked around, and no one knew exactly how tall it was, and there, it wasn't. It was like not even really map, marked on on the map, and. And so he came back the next year in 2006 and he brought and he brought surveyors equipment cuz it's the most German thing you could possibly do. And, they just they travel with that by the way. Yeah. Just... <laughs> and and he measured it. And it turned out to be this incredibly tall waterfall. Again, there's an argument over how tall cuz it's kind of a two-tier waterfall, whatever. I don't we don't need to get into the waterfall forums here, but like it's incredibly <laughs> tall. And and when we went, one of the things we wanted to ask was like the local uh, the local folks who lived there, why they hadn't told anyone about it? Because it wasn't that they were keeping it a secret. This was a town that, like many of these places that we're talking about, was in need of government assistance. It didn't have good roads. It needed electrical work. It was poor and like wanted a tourist, you know, economy. But like, the, so and the thing that they said, I think, is actually super relatable. There were sort of two reasons. One, it had a kind of bad there was a, there was a legend about it that like, if you went oh, to I the waterfall yes. you could be pulled under by this kind of mermaid or this like creature that lived at the base of the falls and you'd never be seen again. No so there, was, like, way. there was like a legend about it that, that made people kind of feel like that place is spooky. But the other reason that they said is like very n- relatable to everyone, which is that basically they looked at it every day when you walked out of your door, you looked up, if you lived in Gocta, you saw the waterfall. It was just there in the background. And, you know, they sort of felt like, yeah, it's just a waterfall, like compared to the world, like how, how amazing is this really? How could and it I just, be? Yeah. I, I think that that is something that we are, that every single person suffers from. We all have a kind of blindness to the world around us. Like it is just part of how our brains work. And if, you know, the trick to me of travel, what makes travel so amazing is it's a shortcut to force yourself to see the world anew because you're not used to it. Your brain sort of has to engage and be like, what is that? Why is it that way? What are they doing? How does this work? And the more you're able to give yourself permission to be that way, wherever you are, far or close, you know, to, to, to sort of take that attitude into the world, to go on a little trip, to get in your car and drive 50 miles and act like you're on a great adventure even if you're just driving, you know, within your state, you will find the gokta Falls of the world. Like they are there to be found. You know, they don't always look as obvious, but those, those amazing wonders are under all of our noses. And like, that's kind of the point of Alice Obscura is to try and give everyone permission to, to explore the world in that way.
0: I love that. I love the idea of just shocking your system and immersing yourself. And I, I had forgotten as we kind of wind down, Dylan. I was in uh, Panama. I took my first vaccinated, you know, post-COVID trip.
1: So Congratulations! Down to,
0: thank you. Oh my God! It was yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I went to Bocas del Toro. Yeah, which normally like it's kind of this like uh, it's an archipelago in Panama, and it's sort of like this party scene place normally. But now there's no parties going on, so it's perfect. It's like quiet. Yeah. There's just a few dive shops, a lot of locals, not much going on. Um, but I had forgotten as soon as I landed in Panama, I'm like, Oh shit, I forgot. I don't speak Spanish. Um, uh, there's a whole system shock and it took me two or three days to get used to my old world and my old life and like opening my eyes to everything around me instead of just yeah. the living room that I spent the pandemic in. So
1: yeah. It's going to take, take a little while to readjust. It's going to take a little while for us all to get back into the world.
0: Yeah. For all of us. So, um, What I want you guys to do is go to Dylan's website, Atlas Obscura. I'm going to challenge you before the next episode. There's a search bar. Type in your hometown. I don't care where it is. I don't care what country you're in. I know there's some in Australia, South Africa, Ireland, a lot in the USA. Type in your hometown, and I guarantee you that you're going to find something nearby in the Atlas. Go check it out. Make plans to see it this summer when you can. The Get Lost Podcast is a production of Sold Outside Exploration Company. Follow us on Instagram for all the latest news and episode alerts at Get Lost Podcast.